Welcome to the Find These Times, a podcast dedicated to the easy task of tackling the 21st century. It is a project born out of my conviction that doing so requires an interdisciplinary and intersectional approach to understanding our complex world. I'm your host, Jerea Yub, and in these episodes, I bring you conversations in the intersection of politics, history, philosophy, culture, science, and all the fun stuff in between. The following episode was first published for monthly Patreon supporters. To become a monthly Patreon supporter, please head out to patreon.com slash times or check the website for other methods. You can become a supporter for as little as $1 a month. And if you cannot donate, you can still support this project by sharing with your friends and family and leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. The music of this podcast is by Tarabit. Here's the episode. So this is a conversation with Susan Kane. She's the author of the book, Nothing Happened, A History. In this conversation, we talk a lot about nothing. Nothing with a capital N. What does nothing even mean? What does it mean when we say stuff like, nothing happened, nothing is the way it was, nothing has changed, nothing is left? We end up concluding, essentially, that when we talk about nothing, we're, o- we're often talking about something. And it's this something, when it gets described as nothing, that can be misunderstood or even erased. And as with every episode, we started discussing about topics around this topic, such as how far away does the past have to be before being considered the past? What does the past say about the present? We use a number of examples from Chile, uh, Germany, the US, Spain, and Lebanon throughout this conversation to strengthen our arguments. Finally, we also discussed when histories become ruined, and I gave the example of Lebanon here. And we also discussed stuff like biographies, the, the notion of great men of history, on objectivity, neutrality in history, and so on and so forth. That's basically it from me. If you're sort of thinking that this might be a weird conversation, all I have to say is probably. Lean into that weirdness, lean into the uncanny, and I think you'll come out of it uh, feeling pleasantly surprised. Uh, Thanks for listening, folks, and take care. Well, hi, Joey. I'm very pleased to be joining your podcast. My name is Susan Crane, and I am a professor of modern European history at the University of Arizona, where I have been teaching for the past 25 years. Uh, okay, so we'll be primarily talking about your, one of your, I think your recent book, Nothing Happened, A History. And you've you've described it as such, and this is this might sound even funny maybe to listeners, I don't know. So you've described it as a book, as a history, as written by a historian who may be excused for noticing that nothing happened and for realizing that this offers a way to understand the very nature of historical consciousness. That is the way that we become aware that the past is somehow distant from but intimately connected to the present. And this is a sentence that I love. Nothing, it turns out, is always something. And in this book, it's always something about history. So let's just start from the beginning, if that's okay. What is this book about? It's one of those books that you just read the title and you figure that maybe there's something wrong with the title or something. But <laughs> what, is, what is it about? Yeah. Oh, thank you for asking that. And thank you for um, liking a sentence. Uh, As a writer, I don't ever get to hear enough people say, ooh, that was really great. I really liked that. So uh, thank you. Um, I so I I always start out by saying I have to apologize, but really, I don't want to have to apologize for the fact that I'm fascinated by the way that people choose to remember the past. So when people ask me, what kind of history do you do? Um, the conventional answer would be to say, I'm a modern European historian, right? Because that's my, my training. Um, but what I really wanna say now is I'm a historian of historical consciousness. 
because all of the work that I've done since I started my graduate school training has been about figuring out when and how did people start caring enough to remember something specific about the past. And in my dissertation, I asked, well, when did people first start creating historical museums? And because German was uh, my second language and European history was my background, uh, I looked at Germany and then it turned out that I didn't have to look farther back than the 19th century to start finding people who weren't trained as historians, but who cared enough about the past to start collecting historical artifacts and preserving them and putting together historical museums. So I've always thought museums were fascinating. Uh, so that's how I got started in all this. So really my whole career, I've been working on um, historical consciousness. So this is what I do. But what's different here and what I hope will strike people, like you said, is, uh, is strange. Is that the correct title? Uh, is something wrong here? I hoped it would startle people because it also startled me. Uh, this was a revelation, you know, figuring out that nothing really happened, uh, that nothing really meant something, uh, and that it was worth paying attention to. And once I started paying attention to it, it was just a huge topic. It was way too big for any one book. So I had to narrow it down. I had to leave out so much nothing. Uh, so I figured I'll stick with my strength. I'll stick with historical consciousness. And it turned out there was a lot of nothing that happened in the past that was being talked about as a memory. So if I just stuck to that, then I wasn't doing quantum physics. I wasn't doing zero. I wasn't doing math. I wasn't doing nothingness, right? There's lots of existentialism I could have been doing. There's lots of religious thought I could have been doing. I mean, Buddhism, let's, but so a lot of nothing got left out. Uh, I started looking at all that and it was just overwhelming. And so I had to narrow it down like any good student does with a research project. I had to narrow it down to a manageable topic and it's still huge. So I decided to look at what do people mean when they say nothing happened because they're remembering something and they're calling it nothing. So what did that mean? And uh, it turned out that in particular, poets are good at expressing that. Filmmakers are good at making that visually expressive. Uh, and historians, it turns out there really are historians who have been writing about the nothing that happened as a history. So those were some of my uh, familiar sources. So the book ended up being about um, a lot of stuff I had read in my career. And even the first two, three times I read it, I didn't notice that nothing was happening in those texts. So I went back and I found nothing all over again. Um, so I'm, I'm thanking you, Joey, for taking an interest in nothing and the fact that nothing happens and that nothing happened and that gets remembered that way. Um, but I don't take it for granted that people recognize this. And so I spend a lot of time in the beginning of the book trying to lay out the premise for how something happens and we remember it that way. I also had just a tremendous amount of fun writing about this. And I unapologetically make puns about nothing all the way through the book because that comes from my family. We are punsters. I, I'm not going to apologize. Instead, I'm gonna quote my kids and my dad in the book. Uh, because that's how I'm thinking about remembering nothing. I'm thinking about it with those collective memories that I'm drawing on that have to do with my family. So my family's a source, poetry and film are sources, historians and their work are sources, and there's a lot more.
I did enjoy a lot of the puns. It's always one of those things where I have, because I think very visually, so I had to literally place the sentence in my mind and then say, well, this, okay, oh, well, nothing is actually something in this. Okay. It, it, it was always fun with that. And I mentioned uh, just it. So I took, I, I got permission to mention this anecdote, but just today with my partner, uh, we were talking a lot. And at some point she said, well, I mean, if I don't do this, then it's going to be like nothingness all, all, or like all around or something like that. And I said, well, actually, in actual to the book. <laughs> And so, I mean, well, and actually, this came up in my classroom this week. Yeah. This is my week, you know, back in person at the university. And I'm teaching a course on histories of memories in the 19th century. And I was, I'm in a seminar and I have 10 students. They're all undergrads. And pretty much everyone was talking except this one student. And so we, it got to the point where I called on him and I said, so what did you think about this article we were reading about memory? And he goes, honestly, I read it last night and I remember nothing. And I smiled and I Amazing. said, well, we can work with that <laughs> because this isn't about forgetting. This is about remembering something that you're calling nothing. And these poor students, they had uh, never had, none of them had had a course with me before, except one. And I don't think he had uh, had to listen to the litany of me talking about nothing all the time. But many of my students over the past several years have had to listen to me talk about nothing a lot. <laughs> so they're used to it. And actually, I quote my students in the book too so there you go yeah. it's a, a conglomerate of sources it's amazing okay so well in so okay that's in the book you start with a pretty tragic story pretty pretty difficult story of yeah. a italian worker i mean he was 21 uh, luigi trastulis his name who was shot by the police and and killed unfortunately lots of residences today um and what's interesting i mean other than that what's interesting is that the community in his city would often recall later on when interviewed by, I suppose, journalists and reporters and others that nothing happened after his death. What did they what did they mean by that? Yeah, so a couple of things just to clarify. Mm -hmm. um, this is a tragic story and it has a lot of resonance today. Um, and people may find it, I don't I hope not too unsettling in the book that we start with tragic stories like this one and we conclude in the book with tragic stories of injustice and the memory of nothing happening um, or nothing happened that should, when something should have happened. Uh, and in between, there's all these puns and there's lightheartedness and there's film uh, that's also entertaining. And there's, so in other words, the book toggles back and forth between uh, pretty serious uh, events and painful events and this lightheartedness. Um, I hope that's a better representation of reality, honestly. Uh, both kinds of nothings uh, are always happening. But just to get to the particular story, uh, this is uh, an oral history that was uh, conducted by Alessandro Portelli uh, with workers in Italy. And he was particularly interested in how they remembered a particular strike that had occurred in the 1950s and um, the tragedy that uh, ensued in that this one young man is uh, shot by police. And so I, I thank my colleague, uh, Jadwiga Pipermuni for even telling me about this. And I used this oral history in a course that was designed to introduce uh, beginning history majors to the study of history. And we wanted to evaluate oral history uh, evidence and, and help them learn how to conduct oral history. So of course, she told me about this classic article by Portelli. It's called The Death of Luigi Trastulli. Um, what struck me in teaching it was the way that the interviewer, the interviewees, excuse me, decades later, were very frustrated 
by the fact that nothing had happened to the police that they held responsible for the death of Luigi Trestulli. There, there had been no charges brought. Uh, and at the same time, they were also frustrated by their own community's lack of activism and lack of insistence on justice for the death of this young man. And so Trestulli, uh, sorry, uh, Portelli, Portelli records both of those responses and he gives you examples of the, um, the language that the people used for their memories. And they say, oh, we're so upset. Still, nothing happened. Nothing happened to them. Nothing happened to them. They should have been held accountable. Nothing happened. We should have done more. And what struck me reading it a couple of times later was the way that what they were remembering was nothing happening. And then I started thinking, well, when does nothing happen? And usually the connotations most people have with that are, oh, something was boring. Nothing happened, nothing worth remembering. Or, oh, nothing happened, um, something could have, but didn't, okay, it went another way. So let's not pay attention to all of those ways not taken. Let's just pay attention to what actually happened because that's what's really important to remember. Um, and so it turns out there's a range of kinds of nothing happening that people want to remember. And that's what got me intrigued. And so that's where, that's the premise of the book. And so you list three expressions of uh, like historical consciousness. And again, this might probably sound confusing to listeners. What I figured I'm going to do is I will list them. I will try and explain them as I understood them. And you'll just correct me if I got it wrong or even like expand on it. So the first one is uh, nothing happened. The second one is nothing is the way it was. And the third one is nothing has changed. The first one, I suppose, is what we just talked about. Nothing happened as in like something should have happened or what followed the thing isn't as important as what should have happened, etc. The second one, nothing is the way it was. I can think of like my grandmother being nostalgic about the era before the civil war in Lebanon, for example, in the sense of, you know, uh, things were better back then, essentially. And nothing has changed, sort of, I can think of folks back home now in Lebanon saying that nothing has changed in the sense of things should be better and things are just repeating the, you know, there's this repetition on a daily basis. And what's interesting with nothing has changed, obviously, is that it's actually an expression of something changing and something getting worse, the situation getting worse all the time. But we use nothing has changed, uh, even in Arabic, we would say nothing, has, nothing is changing, we would say. So... Did I get them right, more or less? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and so how, why, okay, why these three? Why, I don't know, could have been, maybe it's an annoying question. I don't know. Why three and not four? Like, why these three? What do they represent? <laughs> well, actually, there is a fourth one. Nothing okay. is left. <laughs> nothing, nothing is? Nothing left. Right, yeah, so there was one. Sorry, yeah. When nothing, when it seems that nothing is left, I've always been fascinated with ruins and how people interact with architectural ruins. And so I look at, for instance, the ruins uh, that exist in Europe after World War II and how people navigate familiar streets uh, in cities that have been bombed blitz, bits, excuse me, that was, that was a pun, uh, unintentional. Um, so there's nothing is left, meaning, um, yes, I still recognize something from the past, uh, but I recognize it as a fragment or a ruin uh, or I recognize it as the result of an erasure. Uh, and I recognize that maybe it was deliberately removed. And so I'm recognizing change. And pretty much that's the hallmark of historical consciousness. 
when you, like you articulated the two forms of nothing has changed, right? It can be a positive kind of nostalgia or it can be a negative uh, sense that um, of the failure of justice or the failure of a change that was necessary uh, to occur. So with nothing has changed, it can go those two different ways. With nothing is left, it also can. But then you start asking, well, what do people want to preserve or conserve from the past because they've noticed that nothing remains, right? But isn't that ironic right there, right? They say nothing remains. That means something is there, right? Nothing. <laughs> but what are they calling nothing? Right. Okay. So there's that. Um, I guess I would also highlight erasure um, in the sense of um, nothing happened. Because when that is done deliberately, for instance, by a national government or state entity, when they insist that nothing happened, when the victims of, shall we say, genocide or the victims of um, displacement or the victims of um, famine, I, I, and there's so many different examples, know full well that the government caused this and caused it to happen and has never acknowledged its responsibility for it. Okay, then there is an active erasure that is being practiced at the level of power uh, of a state government or a, a national entity like that. Um, and so all people can do is resist in memory by saying, yeah, we're going to remind you that indeed something happened and that you're calling it disappearance or um, you're acting as if nothing happened. Yeah, as, as, as by two other coincidence, the guest I'm going to have on in a couple of days, um, we're going to focus on Tiananmen, uh, the uh, obviously Tiananmen Square right. massacre. And, and this, this is, is one of the this is one of the examples I use in the book. Also. Exactly, exactly. Uh, there's the uh, you know Sim the Simpsons saying they went to Tiananmen. It says on this day in 1989, nothing happened. So I also I also remember that. And yeah. of course, it, it's um, it, a number of the episodes I'm going to try and do on the podcast will try as much as possible i have already done a number of that one like stuff like genocide denialism and denialism of mass atrocities of crimes against humanity and so on and the legacies that those uh traumas effectively uh or essentially continue to have on on many people um and it is this contrast between a government saying nothing happened and the victims and their relatives being there alive those the, the, those that have survived of course, remembering that nothing as something. And so nothing can can be both uh, sometimes like fun and we kind of so, sort of see the stuff that we forget and it kind of gives this new dimension to something that is maybe undervalued. And in other time, like in other uh, circumstances, it can actually be pretty traumatic to talk about nothing because we want, uh, in in some sense, in the case of the of the Italian work, Luigi, it's, it's a bit like that, like the, his the workers, his comrades, his friends, and so on wanted something to happen, and because nothing has happened from their perspective, this is the problem. The lack of something is the nothing in this case. Yeah, a lack or an absence. Uh, so talk mm -hmm. about emptiness in the book. The way that someone will say, "There's nothing out there." Um, sometimes uh, there are entire aspects of the past that people ref will refer to as "nothing is left," or "nothing is the way it was." Right. That's. Um, beautifully demonstrated in the, in the book through the photography of Eva Mann, who is um, taking photographs in Halle in then Eastern German, East Germany, excuse me. Uh, and she's showing ruins, but she's also showing people alive in the presence of the ruins. And she raises, I think a phenomenal question, which is at what point did that change occur? At what point did nothing become 
the way it was. And since she and I both lived through the fall of the wall in Berlin in 1989, and we saw it from, as it were, opposite sides of the wall, um, at which point did it become nothing as the way it was for individuals on both sides? I think the answers will vary. Um, and I wanted to draw attention also to the way that she, um, she personalizes the change. It's not just a mass phenomenon or a political change, but it's the way that politics impacts an individual's life, the way individuals have politics and politics in their life. She is able to envision that in her photography, I think in a really uh, very moving way. And then I also look at um, Rose McCauley who survived the Blitz in London during World War II uh, and had all of her, uh, her library, her personal papers, her apartment bombed and nothing is the way it was for her afterwards either, but she became one of the most important scholars for the second half of the 20th century on the phenomenon of ruins. And yet she's not famous for writing about ruins that like the Blitz left behind. She's famous for writing about beautiful ruins, the uh, aesthetic appeal of ruins. And I just found that bizarre. So I tried to look at her fiction and some more of her writing to try and understand how somebody could have both kinds of experiences of nothing is the way it was. She could see the positive uh, beauty of ruins after having lived through the blitz. I thought that was kind of wild. So I wanted to investigate that further. Yeah, even while you were talking, I couldn't help but think of the 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 imagery of the train in Lebanon, because there are no long, there are no trains right now in Lebanon. There were trains before the civil war, and the, some of some of the country still has the rail tracks, but obviously no trains on them. You can go to some of the train stations, and they've basically become these ruins essentially. And it's it's a, it's something that many activists have sort of latched onto, to, like I would say in the past decade or so, as something that like we can go back to how things were by looking at these ruins effectively and there's something quite uh haunting i should say about about that kind of imagery because obviously we're not thinking of the ruins as ruins we're thinking as ruins as potential <laughs> i don't know what comes after ruins as something that can actually be reclaimed from ruins to something that can be used in in, in obviously trains i'm talking about yeah. So in a sense, you have like they used to have ghost uh, stations on the U-Bahns in Berlin mm -hmm. where uh, they were in that no man's land in between east and west. And so the, you could, some trains could even go through them and there was nothing there anymore. Right. Mm -hmm. Another kind of nothing is a ghost. So if you feel the presence of the way the past was experienced in a location, then people start asking the question, what do we want from it next? Are we going to continue to mourn the past as ghosts there? Or are we gonna try and recover something and restore it? And that is exactly what happened with the U-Bahn stations in Berlin, right? They got rebuilt and reused, repurposed. So there's a kind of recovery. Then you go from, well, nothing is the way it was to, oh, we're gonna use it just like we used it before. Except we all know it's not just like it was before, but yeah. there was an effort to make it feel that way. Right. That's yeah. an effort to kind of erase a sense of nothing or a loss of meaning that was called nothing and to forget about it and move on. Yeah, it's, it's a coincidence. But I mean, since Beirut was also east and west at some point, there is there is a there have been uh, I have definitely been in circles of like activists that, that mentioned Berlin as a success story to be emulated in Beirut. So like these parallels are there. Uh, it's fascinating. So, OK, as it happened. On the 4th of August, um, which commemorated one year since the, the, the explosion that happened at Port of Beirut last year, um, 
I had a number of friends over uh, to kind of just have a gathering. And as it happened, they were all Lebanese plus a couple of Italians. And at some point, we started talking about history textbooks. I actually don't remember how this came up. It was just a casual conversation. And the Lebanese were talking about or were complaining about how um, after 1943, which is when Lebanon got its independence, there are, they have, there are no talks. About, there is nothing in history textbooks. Uh, that mentioned something happening after 1943, essentially. I'm, I'm trying to play with the puns, but I'm not as good. And yeah. uh, they, But the implication, the reason why this was brought up is that it was sort of implied or maybe assumed that this wouldn't be the case with the Italians, because it's also assumed that because Italy is doing better than Lebanon, this is partly due to Italians knowing more about their own history than the Lebanese know about their own history, which, you know, isn't the case for anyone who... Uh, knows Italy quite well, which I do. And uh, it, the Italians actually said, well, actually, they don't know much about what happened after the Second World War. And even before the Second World War, quite a lot of things are obviously uh, omitted and so on and so forth. I just found it very interesting how there was a, a moral um, component to the, the, to the, to the, to knowledge, right? There was like, if we don't know something, we're actually failing morally. And this is ha this this has then repercussions on society, and I admit I I think I I somehow still believe that there's there's a part of me that still feels that well we we just need to know more we need to know more things than than less things and there's kind of this almost this aggregate you know you just add more knowledge and therefore that becomes better things or whatever, and so I was wondering like as a historian, how do you, how do you deal with what gets included in textbooks or what doesn't and what does that even mean. And does that have you know repercussions on society? If yes or no, is it just like an exaggeration that people worry about a bit too much? You know, take whichever angle you want to take. <laughs> yeah, no, your your listeners can't see the big smile on my face because this is such a familiar problem and this is such an important question. And of course, it's not limited to Lebanon. And of course, I'm not surprised to hear it happens in Italy. And of course, it's a problem in the United States. Um, so let's also let's also understand this has been a problem since history was invented. Okay, <laughs> this is not unique or new yeah, in the yeah. mo modern moment, um, but it has specific political forms in each historical context. So that is the historian speaking. Uh, everything has to be considered in its its own specific historical context. Um, uh, but also uh, a couple of random thoughts. Uh, one of the scholars I cite in my book is my colleague Fabio Lanza who is Venetian. And he, once I told him what I was working on and he, he had a quick handle on it, he understood it pretty quickly because he, gave, he was able to give me lots of Italian examples of nothing happening. One of which was a poster that was hanging. And I don't remember how recently the poster was hung. Um, and it said on this site, nothing happened in 19, I think it was 1974. So this was a specific reference to a specific um, political incident and the memory of it. So the idea that you can have a historical marker that indicates the absence of memory that is necessary then to remind people that something happened in a particular place and time. And you call it a marker that says on this site, nothing happened. Okay, those markers are all over the world now, but they're also part of political memories. Okay, then there's the problem of um, textbooks. And I remember hearing this from um, German kids that I was meeting uh, when, I, when I first went as a study abroad student um, to Germany, I was 17. And they said, yeah, nobody teaches us what happens after 1933. Like they weren't even getting the Nazi period. 
And then that changed. And then they weren't necessarily getting the post-war. <laughs> and so I heard this from various students over the last 30 years, um, that there was a perception that there was a gap of knowledge and a gap in the instruction that was being received in public schools. Um, and now I don't wanna accuse all German schools of failing to educate their students, don't get me wrong, about everything that's happened between 1933 and 2021. Um, but the same thing, I've heard the same thing from American students where they said, yeah, you know, we were supposed to get past 1989, but somehow we never did. Uh, or, you know, we kind of got through the Cold War and then, yeah, that was the end of history. Um, so you can raise questions about, um, well, okay, obviously who gets to decide what goes into a textbook in America? That's a very politicized question. It has to do with state governments. But you can also raise a question about what is the nature of contemporary history? In other words, how far away does the past have to be before we can call it the past and not the present? And if you're still dealing within the lifetimes of living individuals, which living individuals' lifetimes constitute the past? I mean, officially, I'm part of the past here, okay? Because I'm 57, I'm gonna be 58 years old this year. So yeah, um, I'm a Cold War kid, right? But the Cold War is in my, my students' uh, history, APUSH classes, right? In AP European or AP American history, they're being told that part of my lifetime is the past. <laughs> um, so this is why I really like uh, working with the collective memories, uh, memory studies and thinking about the nature of memory with, as generational, rather than thinking about, okay, a national memory begins and ends when some textbook says it does, right? So, okay, uh, I'm always fascinated by the question of when does the past begin? And I like to ask my students in a historiography class, how do you draw the line between the past and the present? You know, is that a line in the sand? And sorry, I've been living in the desert for 25 years. So when I say a line in the sand, I mean something very specific and local, a place full of nothing called the desert. Right, the desert is alive and full of memory and flora and fauna. Okay, so let's draw a line in the sand. Where is it? You know, and so they start freaking out. And they're like, oh my God, is what you just said already part of the past? And I'm like, yes, it is. Okay, well, how far back do you want to go? And choosing, choosing where you draw that line, that's what history students get to do. So textbooks, okay, the people who write textbooks, they draw one line in the sand. That doesn't mean we have to stick with it but it's a continually changing line, I would like to point out also. So it's never fixed in stone, which is why I'm also fond of saying, yeah, you can make a monument and you can tear it down because just because you made it out of stone doesn't mean it's permanent. It means you tried to make something permanent, but that doesn't mean that later generations are gonna find the same meanings with that monument or memorial or museum or history or textbook that you did. So you have your intentions and you can try and fix them in stone, but I'm sorry, we wouldn't have PhD programs for history students if that was really the case, right? If we weren't constantly changing how we look at the past and how we write histories. Okay, getting off my soapbox now. <laughs> I mean, I was, I was gonna say like, if you, if you, wanna, if you wanna feel better, I mean, I'm, I'm quote unquote only 30, but I still feel like, I already feel like the 90s is ancient history at this point. And it just, it, I grew up, or at least part of my childhood was without the internet. And obviously this is something that is no longer impossible for most people these days. And right. just, I, I just, I, I, it actually sometimes even freaks me out because then it's like, well, that, that's gone. It's never coming back. And 
yeah, anyway. <laughs> yeah, well, we also had this conversation in class this week in my histories of memories in the 19th century class. Mm -hmm. uh, it, we were coming up with things that people feel nostalgic about and a couple of students mentioned music and song lyrics. And I said, okay, what are oldies? Yeah. How do you find what an oldie is? And I knew what was coming and I was already laughing. Um, and they said, oh my God, the 70s. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 70s and said, 80s, okay, yeah, the yeah. 70s, he said that the 50s were the oldies music. And then my husband and I were listening to an 80s radio station as we were driving because I really liked British new wave music in the early 80s. And mm -hmm. uh, he said, oh, you know, some people would say we're listening to an oldies station. I said, no, this, mu this moves music is my music and it moves me. <laughs> Don't call it oldies. But, you know, of course it is. Well, I mean, one of the interesting, this is kind of a side note, but it's fine. One of the, one of the interesting things that I, I get from with all of the problems of social media but one thing that's fun and looking at how there's sometimes these intergenerational fights and arguments and memes and sometimes it's lighthearted and sometimes it's not but it's always like you know there was there's a meme that i it's that kind of stuck in my mind of um something like along the lines of like millennials mocking gen z or central sense of fashion or something like that and then you have a photo of every Levine with all of her stuff and it's something that I mean, maybe this is kind of a pointless point, but it's it's one of those things that one takes for granted at the end of the day. Like for me, I think of the 90s and I think of some of those early boy bands and whatnot that I didn't really like back then, but I don't think of those as ancient. I don't think of those as like, you know, the past. I just think of those as, well, it happened during my childhood and that's that, you know, it doesn't, doesn't go further than that. But even the, this whole question of like, you know, the line in the sand, uh, you know, I also appreciate that metaphor as someone from the Middle East, obviously, as it's one of those things that imperial powers just do a line in the sand, so to speak. Right. Um, yeah, it's, it's it's there. It's just there. And but like even even in America, I mean, you think of something that's supposed to be, quote unquote, ancient, like 1619. And I think of the project that happened uh, by uh, by or with The New York Times by Nicole Hannah Jones and the controversy or like at least the the I would say media generated anger that a lot of that has has um, that came out of it. For those who don't know, 1619 is the date, the year when the first enslaved Africans were were brought to what was then uh, the English colony of Virginia. And something that's this even this old, like 400 years ago, 402 years ago now, can still generate discussions. If I want to be nice about it, and or pretty hostile conversations, and or hostile, you know, yeah, all of that, and. I, I do find that interesting with all of the negatives that's, that comes out of it. I'm, I'm someone like, as I said, I study Lebanon and the way memory is weaponized in Lebanon can be both interesting and quite unsettling at times. And there is this story that um, I forgot the name of the book. The academic is called Joanna Randanusho. I'll find it and put it in the description. She mentions the story and I already mentioned in the podcast before of how in, in the early days of uh, early days, about eight, Eight years ago or so after the Arab Spring, when some some a number of Syrian refugees were going to Lebanon, some of those Syrian refugees were Syrian Kurdish refugees. And uh, there is a neighborhood of Beirut called Boshamud, where it's um, historically like majority Armenian. And there were some residents who were evoking the legacy of the, the Armenian genocide and the Kurdish participation in the Armenian genocide 100 plus years ago in order to justify uh, discriminatory policies today. Uh, it's a bit more complicated than that, but that was kind of the gist of it. And it was she the way she phrased it, I think, is like wartime, as she calls it, was would be activated in the present. 
So like it's there, it's sort of the way I picture it, it's like it's sort of there in the ether, people sort of conceptualize it, they think about it. Uh, it's It changes depending on the individual and then you have some difference at the community level as well, like from one community to the other and so on and so forth. And it can be used in the present to justify or to explain away something that's happening now. In other, in other words, the past isn't really past. And I, f- I forgot who I forgot who said this, like Faulkner, I think. Like the past isn't past, it's not even past or something like that. And so how, um, yeah, you can focus on the US or Germany if you want, but how, how <laughs> it's, it's, it's one of those questions that's so broad in my mind, I actually struggled to phrase it, but the way I phrase it or I wrote it down is, what do such issues reveal about how the past is discussed and thought about in the present, if that makes sense? Yeah, no, these, this is obviously vital and important and mm-hmm. huge. <laughs> You're raising a huge question. Um, a couple of thoughts, uh, and I'm going to try and tie this back into the book. Um, it's it's um, maybe you're seeing or suggesting analogies between um, recoveries of the past, uh, aspects of the past, and the way they get made meaningful in the present. Um, I like to yes. distinguish between the past and history. And I do this a little bit unconventionally, but I try to state it very clearly at the beginning of the book. The past is what happened, and history is what we write about it. So history is how we make meaning out of the past. History is not a a record of everything that ever happened. The past has always included, for instance, the arrival of enslaved people in 1619 on the east coast of North America. Um, But if that has not been highlighted or featured in the dominant historical narratives that are provided to students in K through 12 classrooms, then yeah, there's gonna be a lot of ignorance uh, and there has been an active erasure. So when we choose, and I say we, and I mean different communities of memories, okay? Because there is no such thing as one American memory or one Lebanese memory. There are communities of memories. And they can be generational, they can be family-based, they're probably both of those things. And then there's the ones that you get acquired, you acquire by being a student in a particular educational system. So uh, if you, pardon my use of this term, there's another kind of intersectionality that we need to pay attention to here. And that is where different understandings of the meanings of the past come into conflict with each other. Right, what you may know in a religious community setting, what you may know in an ethnic community setting, what you may know within your family might not jibe with what you're being told happened in history. So how do you put those things together? Well, one is to become an activist and insist on the memory. Another is to make documentary films about it like Patricio Guzman did uh, in Chile, which nostalgia for the light just blew me away. It's one of the most important films I've seen in my life because he understands history and memory the way I do. And I learned so much about history and memory in Chile because I started watching this film. Can I just say randomly, I was doing nothing. I was sitting, I was tired. I I had the television on, I was channel flipping. I wasn't even streaming, okay? I was channel flipping television stations and I found PBS and I came in in the middle of Nostalgia for the Light and I was looking at concentration camps in Chile. And I thought, I don't know what this is, but in a way I recognize it because I know something about concentration camps and I know something about memory and genocide. And okay, so I bring my knowledge, my understanding of historical meanings to bear on somebody else's history. And I connect 
because he starts talking about nothing mm -hmm. <laughs> and the way that nothing happened in Chile and the way that people responded to that or tried to respond to that to raise awareness about erasure of the disappearance of their loved ones. Mm -hmm. Okay, so um, these kinds of intersections I think are happening all the time if, between popular culture and educational culture, if you will. And uh, if nothing else, if nothing else, uh, it brings up all of the ways in which nothing is happening all the time and we just haven't paid attention to it. So if, um, if there has been erasure and we wanna start recovering aspects of the past and make them more meaningful to us and our students in the present, well, then doing nothing is exactly that. I did nothing. I wrote a book about it because I recovered the ways in which the word nothing has been used to express something meaningful about the memory of the past, memories of the past that we have. Does that make sense? I'm trying to tie it all together. No, absolutely. And even like on Chile, it was the next question as it happens. And uh, of course, the parallels would be quite haunting, and I, I, I use the word haunting pretty consciously. It's, it's, it's a, I have an entire chapter of the PhD that's on it, and because there are these parallels, of course, with the, the and Mafudin, as we call them, the disappeared in, in Lebanon as well, and as it happened with last year's explosion, uh, so some context, what happened uh, between, 70, uh, between 75 and 1990, the Lebanese wars, we, we usually simplify and call them Lebanese civil war, I usually try and preserve the plural, um, generated a lot of people who were forcibly disappeared, essentially. It, it, the numbers range from the thousands to the tens of thousands. And and part of the that range in itself is, is, is I think, a discussion of nothing in, in, some, in some sense, because, you know, it's a huge difference. Uh, and what was formed out of, uh, as of the early 80s, I think a committee of the families of the disappeared, very similar to the, the ones in Argentina and the ones in Chile. And what's, what was quite haunting for me, has been, I've been doing this for the past four years now, this, this research, is that after the blast last year, we also have now a committee of family members of those who were killed in, in that explosion. And they kind of, in, in, in I think the popular imagination, and this is something that I'm, I'm obviously conceptualizing, I cannot, I don't have any pores of the popular imagination, I can sort of have an educated guess. Those disappearances joined the, this is the disappearances, sorry, of the 70s and 80s and even early 90s. And so for those who don't, I'll try and do a, an episode on Chile because I, I like to make um, these comparisons. I did one on Bosnia and Lebanon some, some few, a few months ago, but I, I would definitely do one more on Chile. But uh, what is the example of Chile for those who don't know that you, that you evoke in the book and why did you use it? Yeah, because I am such a fan of this film um, because it moved me profoundly. Uh, one of the things that Guzman does is he noticed something very simple um, and he used it to frame the entire film. Uh, the astronomers who are doing research up on the tops of the mountains above the Atacama Desert are exploring the sky, looking for the origins of us, looking for the origins of Earth and Big Bang. And a lot of people think of space as being full of nothing, right? Space or space is empty. Uh, and outer space is the big emptiness that has a few star, you know, a few million stars in it or something like that. And then he looks down in the ground of the Atacama Desert and it's full of fossils and it's full of the remains of earlier civilizations who traversed across the desert. And it's one of the driest places on the planet, but they were traversing over towards the ocean. 
And so he brings together an astronomer and an anthropologist who uh, work in the same place, basically one up on top of the mountains and one down in the desert. And then he brings in the third uh, group of people who work down in the desert. And these are the women of Kalama who are searching through the desert meticulously day after day in that incredibly bright hot sun looking for the remains of their dead because these are their beloved family members who were disappeared by the Pinochet regime. So they are out there for decades. And then Guzman is drawing analogies about memory and loss, about erasure, about the presence of the past in uh, the desert and in the sky. Uh, and and he's making them visual in ways I can't even, I'm not, I'm not articulate enough to like describe how incredibly aesthetically beautifully he does this. Um, the way he'll dissolve, for instance, from an image of, um, of, of a skull to an image of the ground or the sky. Um, but what he's trying to do is point out a painful history of the suppression of memory. And it's still active in Chile and he's able to show how it's still active. Um, he also uh, is able to show a form of dementia um, among, uh, for instance, a former concentration camp victim is now caring for his wife who has Alzheimer's. And so her lack of memory is unwilled, right? She didn't choose to have Alzheimer's, but it becomes a very vivid metaphor for a country which has not come to terms with a suppressed past and is in, also has collaborated with it. So he's talking about the presence of this uh, collaboration, the presence of the suppression in a community, in a society where there is also active um, living experience of people who suffered exactly the loss that the government says never happened. So the government is saying nothing happened and the people are searching the ground literally for the bones to show that yeah, something did happen. Those bones were pulverized in the Atacama Desert because the government was trying to cover up what it had done. Um, so this is just one example. Um, this is Chile and this is Guzman. Um, I discuss another film by um, Rea Tajiri uh, where she is, it's called History and Memory. Um, and it's a phenomenal experimental film from the early nineties. But she also suggests another form of memory which I think a lot of people um, are maybe unwilling to trust or unwilling to take seriously because it sounds irrational. But you were talking earlier about haunting and that raises the specter and I mean that as a ghost, but it also raises the specter of a memory that might exist beyond our, shall we say, consciousness. Um, Tajiri invokes the memory of um, her parents' house, for instance, that was literally uprooted from the ground in San Francisco area and moved while she, uh, well, excuse me, while her mother and her father and their families had been sent to so-called uh, relocation centers, concentration camps set up by the American government during World War II. So while her family was gone, the house was stolen. Um, there's no record of that. There's no visual of that. She says that, you know, there are things that happen when we have cameras to record them. And then there are things that happen when there are no cameras. And she says, and nothing to, no, no way or nothing to remember that this happened, except that it was observed by the spirits of my ancestors. Um, and she throws that out there. And my students are always a bit resistant to that. They don't want to take that seriously. Um, I take it totally seriously um, because I think uh, there's a spirituality uh, that is also part of what we choose to remember or don't choose to remember. 
and it's resonant for her and it's resonant for her family. Um, she chooses to take her camera and go to places where they were not allowed to have cameras and they were not allowed to make photographs of, for instance, their incarceration in um, here in Arizona. Actually, they were deported uh, from California over to the Arizona desert. And ironically, right, uh, this concentration camp was set up on land that had been confiscated from a Native American reservation, right? So um, this is part of the history here. So anyway, she takes a camera and she goes back um, and films this place for her mother and then shows, so she has video film and she has photography of this place to take back and show her mother what her mother was never able to record. So I think it raises really important um, issues about, well, will we remember nothing if we don't have records of it? Will we remember nothing if there's no visual evidence of it? Will we remember nothing if we persist in saying, oh, that's just this old camp that's out in the desert that nobody wants, right? So in each of those cases, yeah, nothing has been remembered. Um, and that's a, that's a form of erasure. So anyway, to get back to your question, um, yeah, obviously this raises, this raises big issues. Um, and these are just a few of the examples that I found particularly evocative. There are so many, there's so many more. Um, and this is where, you know, I'm not apologizing, but I am saying it's a little, it is a little idiosyncratic that I chose this particular, these two films, for instance, or some of the poetry that I choose, because it, it literally kind of came off my bookshelves. It, it came off of my random TV viewing, and it came off of me looking for the word nothing. Uh, once I started looking, I started finding it all over the place and in a lot of places uh, where I'd already been. And I just hadn't noticed it before. Also along the lines of, of Chile, just because um, I forgot to mention it before, but a number of the mass graves in Lebanon, are, well, I think almost all of them have been built upon now. Like there are just stuff uh, on top of it. And there's one on the what's now the marina where people basically jog now, you know, just a jogging uh, uh, area that is built uh, on top of a mass grave. Wow. And at the same time, one the, 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 the visuals of ruins in my mind, the reason why it's so evocative is that a lot of the the how do you say this a lot of the let's say the pr that the government had in the 90s about quote-unquote reconstruction was partly about ruins was because they were saying stuff like the destruction of the war at least allowed us to uncover some of the ruins that we had from like ancient history like roman ruins and phoenician ruins and so on and now we're going to preserve them and do something with them now they didn't actually do that that was that's a different thing but that was part of the that was part of the, the, I don't know, the metaphors, I guess, that they were using. There's, I forgot what it was, like Beirut, an ancient city for the future or something like that. Yeah. It's like connecting this ancient history with, at the time, a kind of a more neoliberal priorities of privatizing everything. Anyway, I've, I've ranted about this in other episodes. I won't do it again here. But it's something that that um, is there. It's something in the background. And it is very interesting that, like, Politically, we do see the importance of nothing, essentially, and the importance of what gets left behind and what's, what gets remembered and what gets not remembered and, and so on and so forth. And I just thought of, um, I had another academic on uh, David Andres uh, some, a few months ago, he has this book called Cultural Dementia, in which he focuses on uh, the US, the UK and France. And the question, I, I won't bring it up too much because as I said, the entire episode on it, but the, you mentioned how a lot of um, the idea that a, a book that contains a story or a book that contains a history, even when it is not read or when it is not thought about, it 
can it also be lost to history, if that makes sense? Because you said that there's a difference between the past and history, right? But if history isn't being read, if history isn't being thought about, taught, rediscovered, developed, and so on and so forth, is it the same, essentially, as it being left in the past, if that makes sense? I, what I hear you uh, suggesting, I think this is fascinating, is that um, some histories become ruins. Yeah, right? basically. Because yeah, yeah, exactly. Read, yeah, yeah, and they're what's left behind uh, when nothing is the way it was. And now suddenly we're talking about history in a different way. Yeah, no, this is fascinating. Somebody should write about this. Sam, maybe me. <laughs> um, Go for it. So, so yeah, definitely. Um, his, some histories uh, can become ruins. I'm also struck by uh, the example that you're giving from Lebanon of the recovery of antiquity mm. as, a, um, I, I want to say, that's the safe bet. You can always say, we're in favor, you know, I'm showing my big thumbs up here. <laughs> we're in favor of recovering antiquity because everyone knows that's valuable and important. But we will have a lot more disagreement about which modern ruins to preserve. And that's also why I found um, uh, the urban explorers so fascinating. Uh, I write about ruin exploration photography in particular as a kind of ritual of preservation of the experience of having uh, been to these urban ruins. Uh, and so as it, you, you, you go in um, on the same premise that is kind of, it sounds like kind of a Sierra Club thing, uh, take nothing but pictures, leave nothing but footprints, right? But I'm like, ooh, nothing but pictures, nothing but footprints. Oh, they're doing nothing there, right? Um, so they're trying to trespass, quite frankly, they want to trespass on prohibited uh, space so and then they want it to be as if they've never been there as if nothing happened because they want to preserve that illegal access for the next adventurer who wants to try it and because they don't want to get in trouble for it right so they don't want any evidence of the fact that they've been there but where they're exploring these are urban ruins and um most people i think in uh, sort of in popular culture but in in common popular sentiment as well most people would say oh those are ugly uh that's rubble oh, that's falling apart. Uh, why would we want to keep that? You should tear it down and build a nice roadway over it where people can go jogging or make a nice park out of it. Um, because urban ruins are often referred to as blight, urban blight, right? They're, they're not beautiful, um, except that, okay, there's, there's always a minority of people who have found these ruins beautiful. And there's also some terrific photographers, uh, both urban exploration photographers and professional photographers like uh, um, uh, Vergara, uh, Camilo Vergara, right, who have made incredible photography of urban ruins and beautiful, right? They've made it beautiful. Um, so I think uh, modern ruins are always going to be problematic and controversial, and people may or may not choose to preserve them as such. Whereas antiquity, we always want to preserve because, well, there's so little of it left, or because it seems like there's nothing left except for these uh, important ruins. So we have to preserve the ruins. Um, yeah, so antiquities, uh, I'm joking, antiquity is always a safe bet. I'm also thinking about this terrific short film uh, that won an Oscar for uh, the best short film back in the 60s. And it's called um, um, Why Man Creates. And the filmmaker is Saul Bass, who is really famous as a, a super influential graphic designer. He designed a lot of the logos that I grew up with, honestly. Um, but in this film, there's a, a four, four and a half minute segment uh, that's um, basically the history of Western civilization 
And I say Western civilization with a capital W and a capital C, just like all along, I've been talking about nothing with a capital N, right? You have to make it an object, nothing becomes a thing. Um, so what, he makes this short history of Western civilization that would have been very familiar to anyone in the mid to late 20th century who, um, you know, went to school in the West, basically, which is that you learned that the, there was man in the caves and then man evolved and made some inventions. And then there were great civilizations in the, back in the ancient Middle East and in Greece and in Rome. And, and he shows this um, with iconic imagery from each period. There's very little uh, narration. There's, very, there's no like uh, guidelines for you except the visual. And it's all in one drawing and the lines of the drawing just keep building on each other. And so it's a, it looks like a cartoon history of Western Civ. And my favorite part is in the middle where he talks about, um, or he, excuse me, he shows uh, the way that the middle age, nothing happened in the middle ages. So this is something a lot of us learned. And unfortunately, even my kids still learned in middle school, right? Which is that the middle ages were the so-called dark ages because we lost the genius of antiquity and we didn't yet have the recovery of genius that the Renaissance is going to represent. The Renaissance is actually what's gonna give the Middle Ages its bad name, right? Okay, so it gets called and remembered as the Dark Ages or the Middle Ages. So Saul Bass actually shows this uh, with a blackened screen and then a blackened horde of people who uh, come walking across the, the cathedrals uh, that represent the greatness of, of Western civilization and the, also the ignorance of Western civilization together. And in the middle of that darkness, suddenly a little light goes on and there's one guy who is Arab and he's drawing on a desk and another guy says, well, what are you doing? The guy says, I've just invented the zero. And the other guy goes, you did what? And he goes, nothing, nothing, right? So it's a great pun. It's a great pun, but it's actually about in, in like two seconds, you get the history of the way that um, this knowledge has been lost and erased in the Middle Ages because it came from Arab culture, right? So zero as a concept doesn't emerge in the West for a lot longer after that. So Saul Bass does this whole history of Western civilization just, just brilliantly. He illustrates how nothing happened and how it got recorded that way, literally written into the history books as the dark ages when nothing happened. So you get both kinds of nothings happening in the film. Anyway, so I'm a big fan of that film because my dad brought it home and showed it to us kids back in the uh, early seventies when I was in elementary school and he was teaching at a community college. So he had access to a film projector. Most people have never even seen those, right? But he brought it home and we had a little screening at home. So I've always been a big fan of the movie and, and sometimes now I, I make my students watch it too. And we talk about nothing. Amazing. I looked it up while you were talking, so I'm definitely going to watch it later. Um, it's a classic. You've got to watch it. It's amazing. And like, you know, all of these things, like, I don't know, you've got a lot of thoughts in mind. I, I think a lot, I'm, I've been kind of rather obsessing over the, I go through these rabbit holes from time to time, and I've been going through the history of Spain. And a lot of what is thought about even today, thought about, thought and thought about in Spain today, uh, erases quite a lot of, of Spanish history. And I'm not even including, I'm not even talking about colonization of the Americas, and which is you know, a big question mark that is something, sometimes talked about and sometimes not talked about. And even when it is talked about, it's not, yeah, anyway. I'm, I'm talking about like just Spanish history, like, you know, the Islamic golden age, as some people call it, and all of that. And what gets, what gets included as quote unquote Spanish history and what gets included as something that happened in what is now Spain actually says a lot about or is very related to 
today is really related to the present. I guess this goes back to the question of that when we think of, I mean, I think you made the distinction pretty well, like the distinction between the past and history. So I guess this is more a question about history. And mm. I, you know, I lived in the UK for a few years and there's nothing more difficult than talking about British past in, in Britain, to be honest, especially after in, I, I went there a year before Brexit, so maybe my timing was quite bad. But, you know, as soon as you bring up someone like Winston Churchill, uh, it can be very difficult. Like it, it can turn into a shouting match. It can really be a shouting match when two people you feel aren't actually saying the same thing, but they're saying it in the same place and about the same person, supposedly, but not really saying the same thing. And I do find it interesting. I've read some. I've read one of his books, the the Great War one, and I've read a couple of biographies just out of out of curiosity. And I do find biographies very interesting because not because of the what they supposedly are talking about, although sometimes that's the case as well, but because of what they reflect about the writer and when that when that author wrote that book and why today, like wh- why are they like seven biographies of Winston Churchill today, you know, like, you know, et cetera and so on. And it is very interesting that, so to use that, that as an example, whenever he is brought up or when in the past decade, at least as, how, as far back as I can remember, when he's brought up in British contexts, um, it's always a yes, but like, yes, we recognize that there are these bad things about him, but he saved us from the Nazis, etc. And it's almost like there has to be erasure of something in order for something else to exist. Like there has to be nothing for something to exist, essentially. Like we have to erase other stuff that he's done in order to acknowledge this other thing that he's done when in fact, in theory or ideally, you can just have both at the same time. So (laughs) I don't know if this is a why question or a how question, feel free to answer how you want, but why why must there be nothing in order for something to exist, if that makes sense? I think that is fabulous. <laughs> I love it. I want to quote you on that. Uh, because if for nothing, something has to be erased for nothing to persist or exist. Mm-hmm, I mm-hmm. love that. Um, so uh, it reminds me um, mm, of a couple of things. Uh, one of my favorite poets, and I, I neglected her in the book, which is bizarre, is Emily Dickinson. And she once famously wrote, um, I'm going to hope I'm going to say this right. Saying nothing sometimes says the most, right? And she's famously elliptical in her poetry. She, she doesn't write full thoughts, complete thoughts. Sometimes people say she's doing or saying nothing or the, the minimal, right? Um, as far as biography goes, every historian knows that it is the most popular genre of historical writing. And that has not changed in a very long time. And I've often pondered this because I'm actually not a big fan of biography, but I am a big fan of historical subjectivity. In other words, I've written about this and this is part of my scholarly work. I do think it's important to understand who the scholar is and where they are coming from and why they care about their subject. Every biographer will tell you they get obsessed. Every biographer, uh, like, oh, oh, I'm going to forget her name, shoot, uh, who wrote about finding a piece of Nathaniel Webster's hair in the archive, and she was suddenly in love with his hair. Oh, come on. It's a famous historian. I'm blanking on her name. Anyway, um, anyone who's worked on a historical personage will tell you whether or not they ended up writing biography. That we get a little obsessed. Um, so I think maybe readers enjoy or share that obsession with personalities and individuals and what they're like. 
Um, but I would like historians to just be a little more candid about the fact that we care. So, I mean, this raises obvious problems like, well, wait a minute, I'm a historian of genocide. Um, obviously I care, but no, it's not because I'm obsessed with Hitler or it's not because I'm obsessed with um, you know, mass murder. Um, so you can write about um, subjects that you find abhor aberrant, really, that you're appalled by. And you can feel that it is morally or ethically really important for you to do so. Okay, well, that's great. Just, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with saying so. I guess I wish people would feel more comfortable being a little more candid about why they care because that's historical consciousness. Everybody experiences it differently. Different people care about different aspects of the past and that drives them to do research or that drives them to make a film or that drives them to have an argument with somebody in a pub, right? So can we just admit it? <laughs> we care uh, and not try and waste so much energy on just being objective, on just being neutral or, or you know, supposedly that's our, our highest calling, right? We will always strive to be that noble dream, right? Is what it used to be called in the American historical profession. That noble dream of objectivity. Okay, we all know it was impossible. We all know it, we, we could never do it, but we were supposed to aspire to that. I'm like, why are we wasting so much energy on that? It's not going to affect um, our scholarship. It's not going to affect the accuracy uh, or the ethical practices of what we do. If we also say the word I, you know, the first person, if we use that, I, I, anyway, I let my students also use the first person in their writing and I tell them uh, I'm not, I'm never going to have a problem with that as long as what you say in the first person uniquely contributes to the historical analysis that you are writing. Yeah, I do actually uh, had an entire conversation with my own supervisor about this uh, because I, I do use the eye in my own thesis, although not as, not a lot. And I do, there's a, there's a personal rationale that I include in the beginning of the PhD as to why I'm doing this. And I just couldn't help but say, well, I'm studying 1990 to 2020, more or less. It was actually to 2019 first, and then I just extended one year and then another year. And the reason why I do so is that just so much has happened since I started writing, and I just can't ignore it. Uh, I, I started writing in 2017, and then it was in 2019 that the revolution happened, and 2020, the pandemic and the explosion and then everything. I just, I just couldn't not include something like that because the the topic of the thesis of the research is like hauntings and how the past isn't really the past and how the disappeared aren't really disappeared and then there are these other disappeared now from 2020 it just became inevitable essentially and so this is one of one i'm i'm someone who yeah i do admit in the beginning i didn't want to use the i wanted to be quote unquote objective and then the more i got into it the more it felt that i was spending way more energy and way more time trying to be quote unquote objective than I was actually doing research and doing actual writing and just like getting to the point, essentially I was, yeah, anyway, so I, I do, yeah, I'm, well, I'm quite familiar with this. And no, and I, I'm glad to hear that you're doing this and I'm glad you've had that realization because uh, mm -hmm. I think it's gonna make your work stronger, honestly. Mm -hmm. um, I'm also thinking about the fact that I've, I've, for the last, what, seven, eight years, I've been telling people that I'm doing nothing. <laughs> and they're looking at me funny, like, what? I thought, does that mean you're like, are you on sabbatical? No. <laughs> uh, they don't get it, right? And I, I meant to make it as a fun intro, a fun punny intro to you know what I'm actually doing. But it also is quite serious. I have been doing nothing for the past several years because nothing became my historical object. And mm -hmm. I have been focused on this thing, this mm -hmm. nothing. Um, so it, it was current for me. It was contemporary for me. I was doing 
nothing. And what I was doing was historical scholarship about historical consciousness, right? So that contemporarity, that the fact that it was happening in the present while I was thinking about the past, um, uh, you know, my, my, one of my favorite uh, scholars of historical theory has always been uh, R.G. Collingwood. I mean, Collingwood talks about the way the past only happens in the, the reimagination of it in the historian's brain, right? So uh, if you're trying to be objective about the past, you're already screwed up because <laughs> the past is in your head, okay? And there's so much we don't understand even neurologically about how memory works. But if the past is being reimagined in my brain and reimagined in my memory, and if that is where it exists, then yeah, it is very much happening in the present. So I am writing history in the present because I am reimagining the past in the present. So yeah, ask that question again. How do you draw a line between the past and the present? It's, it's like a squiggle in your head. That's where it is ultimately, right? So now you can see all my students making that little munch face in class, you know, where they put their hands on either side of their faces and they go, no, this hurts my brain, right? Uh, but honestly, that's, I think that's really exciting. That's the kind of history I want to do. One of the books that most moved me towards that direction, I have it somewhere behind me with them. It's called The Mnemonic Imagination. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's by Emily. Oh, I do not know this one. I'm Emily... writing it down. Emily Kitely and Michael Pickering. I'll, I'll write it down in the description. For oh, of course, well. of course. Yeah. Okay, know the names. And so the, the idea is quite simple that the, the way we remember isn't just about the like the fact that we are in the present and we're getting stuff from the future as like, it's kind of like this extraction in some sense, like a neutral extraction and objective extraction, but it actually not just impacts the way we think about the past, the more we actually think about the past as well. That in the sense that if you're remembering the first time, it's not the same time as remembering the 10th time, because quite a lot has happened in the meantime, essentially. And that yeah. this affects essentially the way we remember yes. the past and of course the way then we act upon this in the present. And so that, that's one of the books that quite, that convinced me to move towards that other side of things, if you see what I mean. No, excellent, that does sound good. And I think actually I have looked at this now it's, it's coming back to me um, because it really resonates with collective memory. Yes, uh, the yes. way we yeah. do memory studies uh, is thinking about the, the way that memory is an event that keeps happening and it, it's it's constantly changing, right? Every time a memory is evoked, it's a changed memory and it gets different associations and different meanings. And yeah, that's the way memory works. So you write, and like, so I have this quote um, that, that you wrote, I wrote it down just before getting into the book section towards the end of, the, of this conversation, that's okay. Uh, and I'll just, so I'll quote you. I know some people don't like when you, you quote their own stuff at themselves, but I'll do it anyway. And so the quote is, nothing is worth pondering from the perspective of historical consciousness precisely because of its stacked, static nature. Everything changes except nothing. Nothing remains the same. That is, nothing remains nothing. And it turns out that history is a response to both change over time and to the continuum of nothing remaining the same. That last sentence was it's kind of, I, I had to sit with it for some, for some time to actually... <laughs> Because it is, it makes it a lot of sense when when you think about it. Like when you accept nothing with a capital N as the thing that is both static and not at the same time, depending on how we think about it. Then a lot of it's like you know, it's like in my mind that there was a puzzle, and now it's sort of put in, in. It's no longer in pieces in some sense, if that makes sense. Because I'll try and explain it the way I thought about it first, or the way I understood it that, okay, history is a response to both change over time. Okay, this is maybe the more traditional way of thinking. Okay, things happen a, you know, 100 years ago, then 90 years ago, and, you know, it changes over time. It's linear thinking, it's a linear time. But at the same time, to the continuum of nothing remaining the same. 
in a sense that nothing keeps on repeating. It's oh, I think <laughs> it's not even repeating itself necessarily, but like nothing remains the same. That there's always nothing in between the somethings, essentially. Is that fair? <laughs> Yeah, no, this is great. And I don't mind you quoting me because what I find so fascinating is whenever I see my own work quoted, usually it's in a way that um, I, I really admire because somebody else has done something creative with it. Yeah. You've understood <laughs> something that I didn't think about when I was writing it. And I love that. Yeah. So thank you. Um, but I'm also thinking about, uh, I love the pun. Nothing is the same. It because is. It's quite good. Yeah. As a <laughs> statement, right? It means change is always happening. Nothing's the way it was. That's what it means, right? That's how most people would use it colloquially. And what I'm trying to do by capitalizing the N is saying nothing is the same. And it's a, it's an oxymoron, right? Uh, it's it's a statement that change is always happening. And yet what, it, what it's really saying is nothing is always the way it was. Nothing doesn't change. <laughs> nothing is always what people will use to express the sense of, uh, I don't care about it, or uh, it wasn't important, or I don't need to remember it, or it didn't matter, or there's nothing out there, or it's emptiness, or you know, whatever. It has that consistency of meaning. And yet when you capitalize it like that, suddenly when you're talking about historical consciousness, it just explodes the narrative. And I love that. For me, that was, that was a revelation that I could, I could really work with. Yeah, because nothing, now I'm confusing myself. <laughs> yeah, I know, it's hard to talk about, right? It is, it is. Nothing has changed. Not, the meaning of nothing has yeah. just changed for you. Because it's the, the reason, it is a continuum. So the fact that nothing is a continuum is because everything always changes all the time, essentially. That's, that's right. kind of a, it's a mind twister, but it makes a lot of sense when one sits and thinks about it. Okay, it's a mind twister, but what about the other cliche? There's nothing new under the sun. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> nothing point. is always the same. It's always already there. Sorry, can't be original, can't be creative because there's nothing new under the sun. Good point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, we can, we can, believe me, I've gone down this pun-filled path. I can imagine, it's yeah. It's, it's very rich. It's very rich. I, actually, so, I can say this about my methodology. I actually started with one of those blank moleskin books. Yes. And on each page, I put a nothing. I put a cliche, a proverb, uh, a song lyric. And then I started keeping a list of all the places where I found it. And that book okay. got filled really fast. <laughs> and then I only ended up keeping three or four of those pages that were actually about historical consciousness. But yeah, definitely hanging on to that notebook. It's, it's a gold mine. Amazing. Well, okay. So I always ask guests towards the end of the conversation if they can recommend three books. And so what are your three books and why? Okay. Uh, so again, hard time choosing, but since we're talking about nothing in memory and that's my happy space, um, I found a couple, uh, so I want to tell a little bit of a story about how I got these books um, because they all have a Chicago connection. My daughter and her boyfriend are both undergrads at the University of Chicago and I went out to visit them at, at, when it seemed safe to travel again. I finally got back out to Chicago and I went to a bookstore there. The seminary co-op wasn't open yet or I would have gone there, but I went to a bookstore up on the north side and I found a couple of books and uh, my daughter's boyfriend, who's an anthropology and linguistics major, got me hooked on another one. So that's the Chicago background to this. So the first book is called In Memory of Memory and the author is Maria Stepanova. So this was originally written in Russian and the translator, I think, has done a gorgeous job. And I can't say that because I know Russian. I can say that because the language is so beautiful. And if that must have been the way Stepanova wrote. 
the translator, I want to give her credit, is, or is it, oh, it's Sasha Dugdale. Sasha Dugdale is the translator. Okay, so In Memory of Memory is billed by the publisher. It says on the back of the book that it's fiction. And I'm like, it is not. It cannot possibly be fiction. <laughs> um, it is, uh, Stepanova is a poet and she writes with a poet's voice. And so it, the, the prose is just gorgeous. She's also a journalist. She's read pretty much everything I have about memory and she has her own reactions to it. And she integrates all of those references, all of those authors, all of those texts that I'm familiar with and specifically about photography into a book about a family's photo album. And she includes one photo right at the end of the book, that's it. But she describes it at the beginning of the book. And she says, basically this is going to be a story about how I can't recover everything that I want to recover about the knowledge of the history of my family. And in between, she's going to consider the history of the Soviet Union, the history of the end of the Cold War, the history of Russia after the Cold War, et cetera. Um, I'm just gonna give you one really good line from it. Let's see if I got this here. This book is about my fam. This book about my family is not about my family at all, but something quite different. The way memory works and what memory wants from me. And then she has some beautiful reflections on uh, the nature of historical consciousness. Um, one line I really liked, everyone was engaged in what she calls getting a good view on the past as if there was nothing else worth doing, as if this was the new form of a grand tour. I love that idea of the past as something we go and we, we take photos of, we keep souvenirs of, we say, I've been there, right? Like we were on the grand tour. I love that. So that's uh, in memory of memory. Uh, I found it beautifully written and totally about nothing in memory in ways that I loved. And then the anthropology student got me on to Susan Lepselter's book, The Resonance of Unseen Things, Poetics, Power, Captivity, and UFOs in the American Uncanny. And she starts off by saying, nobody is gonna take this subject seriously, I know, but I went and embedded myself in communities of people who believe they were abducted by aliens and that they were taken away on unidentified flying objects, UFOs, and that they have come back and things have been done to them that they cannot remember. And the way she talks about resonances, I, I wanna operationalize for my own scholarship because it's brilliant. Um, she finds resonances of things unseen are uh, expressions of apophenia. Have I said that right? Apophenia. The experience of perceiving connections between random or unrelated objects. Now, if that's not nothing, I don't know what is. So she sees resonances between the kinds of abduction narratives that people share about their UFO experiences and other forms of abduction narratives that exist in, for instance, North American literature and popular culture. Um, but she also sees resonances in um, the experience of something uncanny or something that you have no other explanation for and you try and get people together who maybe share the sense that they can't explain 
what happened to them. And she takes that really seriously. That's a legitimate, you know, feeling. So she, uh, she kind of holds, and I'll, I won't spoil the punchline, but she kind of holds in abeyance the question of whether she believes that something is out there, that the truth is out there, and we don't know what it is, right? She kind of holds that in abeyance, and she takes these people totally seriously. And I thought, I thought her writing was absolutely brilliant. Um, I like how she said, things at first look like weeds when they begin to push their way up through the cracks. And I thought that is a fabulous expression of historical consciousness as well of the recovery of memory. Okay, so that's the resonance of things unseen. And then I have a tie for third place. What should I do? Can you I can do whatever you want. You can mention both. <laughs> so my colleague, Maria McWhorter, who's our uh, new uh, public historian in the history department at the University of Arizona, and she runs the Public History Collaborative. She turned me on to a book by Saija Hartman and the title is Wayward Lives, Beautiful Experiments, Intimate Histories of Social Upheaval. She reads photographs in a way I've never seen anyone do before. She's actually a scholar uh, of English, uh, so she usually focuses on literary text, but the way she reads these photographs is revolutionary and everybody needs to see this. She is able to get at the lives of people who never left behind memoirs about whom no biographies have been written about. These are ordinary black men and women from specifically the end of the 19th century and specifically the women's lives. She looks at photographs that were taken pretty much either against the will of the subjects or with the subjects not knowing that the photographs were being made. And sometimes the photographs were used as evidence against them. Um, and she talks about what might have been going on in these women's lives based on other types of evidence she has, particularly literary. And she is able to sort of bring these photographs to life in a way that I, I've never seen anybody do before. So um, for histories of memories and memories known through photography, um, she's essential. And then the other book I really liked is by, uh, it's a translation of Alain Corbin's uh, A History of Silence. So this came out, I guess, just a couple of years ago. Um, he writes about silence as a form of nothing. So how could I resist, right? Um, he talks about silence as a form of nothing. Silence um, where you'd say it requires great skill to speak, but no less skill to say nothing. I liked that quite a bit. He talks about silences in the desert. He talks about the silence of snow. He talks about the experience of silence and the knowledge that is uniquely found as or through silence. And meditation is another form of this. He says, we still need to write a history of taking a moment of silence to honor a tragedy, to honor the dead, to acknowledge absence. He said, we, we, need, we need a historian to write the history of, of that silence. Um, that's tempting. That's very tempting. <laughs> you should do that, yeah. So yeah, so um, it's a brief book. Uh, it's beautiful and I can highly recommend. Yeah, okay, Amazing. so tie for third place. Amazing. Actually, so I, I try to remember someone definitely recommended Wayward Lives before on this podcast. I haven't got, I haven't oh, got really? into reading oh, it yet. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, that, that's a game changer. That book is a total game changer. Amazing. But I, I have a whole list of books that I read because they have nothing in the title. Also, <laughs> I picked up Madeline Tien's Do Not Say We Have Nothing. 
okay. because it, I saw it in an airport <laughs> bookstore and it had nothing in the title. I learned so much about the Cultural Revolution from that. It's a fabulous I novel. I yeah. So I keep reading books that have nothing in the title. <laughs> well, they I say mean, nothing to me, okay? They, they say they, nothing I just it's just it's just very fun honestly and it's it's just one of those things that as I said the the title in itself is was one of those things one of the reasons why I picked it up was the title and I, I yeah I, I did I, I entered it with some skepticism as I do with most books but I've, I've been pleasantly surprised before and this was one of them oh fantastic thank you and you can also thank the nice people at Stanford University Press uh, because uh, they shortened the title <laughs> and it made it so much more zippy and so much punchier and I was like yeah I have to admit it was never my working title but it's really good it does work because you just see nothing happened on it and so that that's already attract that attracts your attention right okay. and they designed the cover so that you see a historical marker just like the yeah. ones that say on yeah. this site in 1897 nothing happened yeah well you know so I, I thought that was I, I haven't quite decided yet what image to use for the for the preview, but there is one um, one candidate is late. Uh, so it's a scene from Late Spring, which is this old Japanese. I'm saying old again, if 1949 Japanese movie by by uh, Yasujiro Ozu, and it's it's well Ooh, known. Nice. nice. It's well known in in cinema, like I would say cinephile cultures or what what have you, because there is towards the end. I'm not gonna say too much about it, but there is an, an image of. He just shoots at he just shoots a vase for some time and he doesn't explain why there's absolutely no indication as to why and many people think well nothing is happening in the scene and actually that's part of the interpretation so that, that's I'm one of the candidates that, yeah i'm trying to remember why somebody else told me i needed to watch a movie of osu's and i i haven't done it yet so this has come up recently as well i love the the resonance here it might be this one. It might be this one. There's a good, uh, I will link this since I'm mentioning it. There's a good uh, video essays on YouTube by NerdWriter on on this uh, on this vase. And so if people uh, write Ozu vase, they, they'll find it because it's just a thing that people have talked about a lot. Okay, Ozu vase. I'll look for that also. <laughs> I mean, I look, I have my favorite images too. And um, I, I got to publish uh, several of them in the book. So any of those photos in the book are, are uh, I think, fair game. But I, um, I'm very, I'm a fan of the cover. Amazing. Well, on, on, on this note, uh, Susan, thanks, thanks a lot for your time. This has been amazing. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. I really enjoyed talking to you and I, I wish you good luck in your own research uh, and forthcoming dissertation. I'll look forward to hearing more about your work.
Fire These Times is made possible by supporters on Patreon. If you'd like to support through a monthly donation, you can head out to patreon.com slash fire these times. If you want to explore other options, you can do so by checking out the website.